welcome back to the From Heaven to Eternity podcast. I'm Brian, and today we're going to start Matthew 14. If you haven't been following along, we are currently going chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew. Because of the way chapters 13 and 14 laid out, we covered the first 52 verses of chapter 13 last episode. Well, two episodes ago because I went off script last episode. But today we'll grab those last six and we'll add them to chapter 14. Chapter 13 was the first major parable section we found in Matthew. Parables can be confusing or complex, but Jesus uses them to reveal truths about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that Jesus himself ushers in. In the parables, Jesus speaks with authority on what God's kingdom looks like and on the value associated with kingdom membership through faith in Jesus. Today's section of scripture can sort of be broken down into two main sections. The end of chapter 13 and the first 13-ish verses of chapter 14 describe the rejection of Jesus himself by the people of Nazareth and the rejection of John the Baptist by prideful Roman leadership. It's a rejection of God's messengers, God's message, and ultimately of God himself. In chapter 13, the people of Nazareth who ask two questions about Jesus I want to point out. The first is at the end of verse 54, and the second is at the end of verse 56. Verse 54 ends, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? And the end of verse 56 says, Where then did this man get all of these things? The people couldn't wrap their heads around Jesus being more than just another dude from Nazareth, and they wanted to know what made Jesus so different. It's almost like the people of Nazareth were echoing the same question Nathanael asks in John chapter 1. Can any good come out of Nazareth? The rest of chapter 14 continues to describe the miracles, authority, and amazing healing powers that underline who Jesus is. His authority and power comes from God the Father. They answer the questions raised by the people of Nazareth. If only they had eyes to see and ears to have listened before he left their town. Chapter 14 contains two of the most familiar miracles of Jesus, feeding the masses with only a Long John Silver's Happy Meal, and then walking on water. We'll dive into these miracles and the rest of this chapter. I pray you'll follow along and that God will open our eyes to see more clearly who Jesus is through these passages. We'll pick up in chapter 13, verse 53. Here, just like other teaching passages, Matthew records, we get the phrase, when Jesus had finished, followed by Jesus removing himself from the area, leaving the crowds amazed and astonished at his teachings. The cycle repeats itself in verses 54 and 57. Here, we don't get what exactly Jesus taught, but the passage says, coming into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. So Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth to teach in the synagogue there. It's important to note that this isn't the only time Jesus taught Jewish people in a synagogue. Some people have this false visual of Jesus rejecting all Jewish authority and tradition, and that's not the case. He might have all authority, reveal scripture's full meaning, and bring about its fulfillment, but he's not rejecting the Old Testament. His objections are toward the people who falsely and pridefully distorted the Old Testament's teachings. Jesus taught in the streets, in the synagogues, and in the rural hills. No favoritism at all here. 
After Jesus finishes in the synagogue, we see the people from Jesus' hometown questioning who could have granted Jesus this wisdom and authority. These are people who might have known Joseph, Mary, or Jesus himself when he was younger. Throughout the Gospel accounts, Jesus announces that his wisdom, authority, and mighty works have come from God the Father. But the people of Nazareth could not bring themselves to believe it. They don't go as far as the Pharisees who accused Jesus' works as being from the devil. But this is still a rejection of Jesus. A rejection of the message of the Old Testament that Jesus was fulfilling. And a rejection of the authority of God altogether. Jesus responds by removing himself from the situation, and the Bible says that he didn't do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. It doesn't say he did no works there, but the rejection of him obviously had consequences. Instead of Jesus performing enough miracles for the people there to believe, he left and moved on to a new area. People today might say things like, if only I had a sign from God, then I would believe. Well, The people of Nazareth were brought to astonishment by the things Jesus said and the things Jesus did. But it wasn't enough for them. They still questioned. If you want to see enough empirical evidence to force faith upon yourself, then you could be waiting for a long time. Ask Pharaoh, as he was chasing Moses toward a watery grave, if he came to faith after the ten plagues of Egypt revealed there was only one true God. By the way, Jesus' half-brother James, who's mentioned in this passage, he did come to faith in Jesus after Jesus' death and resurrection. He actually penned the letter of James that we have in our Bibles, and was himself martyred when he refused to publicly reject who Jesus was. Speaking of rejecting those who believe in God, chapter 14 reveals to us that John the Baptist had been put to death. His death is an interesting and salacious story. It's not the point of these verses, but I'll recap the story anyway before getting to the theme. Basically, Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas, was now in charge of the region. This woman, Herodias, was married to Antipas' half-brother, Philip. So Antipas' half-brother was married to Herodias. Well, Antipas convinced Herodias to ditch Philip and to marry him instead which violated Levitical laws against incest. Well, John the Baptist, himself well-versed in Levitical law, called Herod Antipas out on this problem. Because he dared highlight a problem with the leadership, he was imprisoned. But Antipas was a politician, and he knew that the people loved John the Baptist, so he initially did not want to sentence him to death. He was afraid that killing John the Baptist would cause revolts and riots. So he didn't do it until he is pleased by his stepdaughter dancing one night. He's so impressed and entranced by whatever kind of dance this was that he promises to do whatever his stepdaughter asks. Well, her mom, Herodias, gets the girl to ask for the head of John the Baptist, and so John's fate is sealed. He is beheaded, and when news about this gets to Jesus, he withdraws to a desolate place. Okay, so that's the historical background on chapter 14, verses 3 through 13. But I wanted to circle around to verses 1 and 2 because I think this is the underlining verse of the section. After John's death, Herod Antipas hears about Jesus and all the things that Jesus is doing. So, much like the people of Nazareth, he also questions where Jesus got his wisdom and mighty works. Unlike the Pharisees who thought it was from the devil, and unlike the people of Nazareth who can't see past Jesus' earthly family tree, Herod Antipas 
attributes Jesus to be some version of a reincarnated John the Baptist. I guess you could say he was paranoid or had a guilty conscience or something. It is yet another way that people rejected who Jesus was, what Jesus had come to do, and where Jesus had received his authority from. Recall the purpose of the parables last episode when Jesus said in Matthew 13, 11, To you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but it is not given to them. None of the three groups listed were given eyes to see or ears to hear, and all three could not compute that Jesus actually was the Jewish Messiah, who was actually God, and who had actually been given all authority by God the Father. There were only two groups of people, those who accept who Jesus is, believe, and are saved, and those who reject him and are not. So now we get to two super familiar passages. If you're a Christian, you've heard them in sermons and Sunday school classes. Chances are that even if you've never studied the Bible or attended church in your life, you have still heard about Jesus feeding the 5,000 and Jesus walking on water. From a pop culture perspective, these historical events are the New Testament equivalent of Noah's Ark or David and Goliath. So the feeding of the 5,000. He, after hearing the news of John the Baptist's death, Jesus gets in a boat, and he withdraws to the middle of nowhere. He obviously only needed a little reprieve, because he withdrew to a place where the crowds could catch up to him on foot. When he reunites with the crowds, the Bible says he had compassion on them and healed their sick. After all the healing action, it obviously started to get late, and the disciples were concerned about feeding the crowd with only the five loaves and two fish they had on hand. Jesus, in a miraculous display of his divinity, commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed, broke, and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. They all ate and were filled. They took up twelve baskets full of that which remained left over from the broken pieces. Those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. As if feeding 5,000 people and having more leftovers than you started with isn't miraculous enough, the text points out that it was 5,000 men, not counting the women and children who were in the crowds, which almost assuredly were present also. If you factor in that for most of the men it was likely a family event, then you're looking at estimates two to four times that 5,000 number. The only way this crowd could have been fed was through the miraculous works of the one who had the authority of God. Where else in the Bible have we seen God the Father feeding his people in the wilderness? So in the book of Exodus, we read of the manna from heaven that God sent down each day for the people who were wandering in the wilderness. The word for desolate place in verse 15 is even the same word that gets translated into wilderness earlier in Matthew and to wilderness in the Greek translation of the book of Exodus. It's a tip of the cap to the new Moses theme we've talked about in the book of Matthew previously. By the way, those people were following the leadership and authority God had given Moses, and they were literally following the presence of God in and above the tabernacle for their daily travels. Listen to what the Lord tells Moses in Exodus 16, verse 12. I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At evening you shall eat meat, and in morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. The crowd in Matthew 14 was following Jesus, 
both fully God and fully man, who was given authority from God the Father. Jesus, the new and greater Moses, who feeds his people in the wilderness, who is both a human and divine, who intercedes between God the Father and his people. Jesus doesn't make an explicit declaration here that he is God because he gave them bread and fish aplenty, but don't miss the connection Matthew wants us to make. Jesus' miracles are so that we shall know that he is God. In the Gospel according to John, Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. In John 6, he states, Most certainly I tell you there wasn't it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but my Father who gives the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. After Jesus feeds the people and the disciples collect the leftovers, Jesus does what he tended to do after major events. He withdrew up to a high place to pray. He commanded his disciples to get in their boat and go on before him. Sometime during the night, a storm started to kick up on the water and batter the boat, which the Bible says was in the middle of the sea. On boats at sea, the watches are divided into time frames. So sometime during the fourth watch, which would have been between 3 and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them, walking across the water. So, even for the disciples, who had seen the miracles that Jesus had done, the sight terrified them, and it confused them. They called Jesus a ghost, and they cried out in fear in the midst of this terrible storm. The disciples might have been thinking, this is it, this is the end. Jesus responds with a phrase the ESV Bible translates, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Some translations might have take courage or have courage. The Greek word here is tharseo. It literally means to radiate warm confidence, but it's referencing having a trust that promotes unflinching courage. Also, take heart, it is I, could be translated, take heart, I am, alluding to the covenant name of the Lord from Exodus. Peter, never one for nuance, just blurts out, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the waters. So Jesus commands him to come. And for a few minutes, it works out, and Peter walks on the water toward Jesus. Until he saw how strong the wind was, gets cold feet, gets scared, and begins sinking into the water. Immediately, the Bible says, Jesus reached out his hand, grabbed Peter from the water, and returned him to the boat while asking him that famous question, You of little faith, why did you doubt? Thankfully, Jesus, as the object of our faith, is greater than any wavering in our little faith. So then, in another miraculous display of Jesus' authority over creation, as soon as they got to the boat, the wind ceased and the disciples worshipped Jesus, saying, You are truly the Son of God. Notice the distinction between the response of the disciples here and the response of the other groups in previous chapters to Jesus' miracles. The religious elite respond with disdain and accusations. The crowds respond with amazement, intrigue, and awe. The disciples, however, they respond with worship and declaration. It's a recognition that who Jesus was and what authority he had been given could only be from God the Father. At his baptism, God the Father calls Jesus the Son of God. At their exorcism, demons called Jesus the Son of God. 
but here is the first time that we see the disciples apply this title to Jesus. The Greek word for worship here, and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, is proskunia. It's showing reverence to. It's to kneel down in recognition of superior and to kiss the ground before them. It's a response that we haven't seen from the Pharisees, the crowds, or the disciples so far up to this point in the gospel. Jesus' miraculous crossing of the sea to deliver his disciples to safety should invoke images of another situation where God stepped in to deliver his people across the sea. During the exodus out of Egypt, Yahweh, the Lord, the great I Am, miraculously delivered the Hebrews across the Red Sea. Just as God controlled the sea and the sky during the exodus event, Jesus here controls those same elements of creation. Job chapter 8 verse 9 says God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. These events are meant to point us toward the divinity of Jesus. If we were to try to make these stories about how Jesus can multiply things in our life, or we try to apply it to ourselves, then we risk missing the point. Jesus is God, and he can do what only God can do. Charles Corliss writes, These events signal that Jesus is none other than the one responsible for the miracles of the manna, and none other than the one responsible for the crossing of the Red Sea. Jesus is Yahweh. The Son of Man is the Son of God, and he alone has been given all authority in heaven and on earth to save people from their sins. The chapter ends almost completely inversely to how chapter 13 ended. In that chapter, Jesus arrives in Nazareth, the people of Nazareth recognize Jesus, they reject Jesus, and Jesus doesn't perform any miraculous works due to their unbelief. Chapter 14 ends with Jesus arriving in the land of Gennesaret, the people recognizing who Jesus is, and flocking to Jesus, begging to be healed through his hands. Chapter 14, verses 35 and 36 say, when the people of that place recognized him, they sent into all that surrounding region and brought to him all who were sick, and they begged him that they might just touch the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made whole. The section of Matthew we covered today underlines who Jesus is. In light of that, there are only two response categories. You can mischaracterize Jesus. And you can try to put him in a box that fits a narrative you can accept, a rejection of Jesus as God, Lord, and Savior. Or, you can recognize who he is, come humbly to him in repentance, and be healed by his blood. I pray, if you are a follower of Jesus already, that you allow this chapter to grow your love for him and to invigorate your desire to follow after the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. If you're not a Christian, I pray that God would reveal these very familiar events in a way that transforms your heart, in a way that brings you to see Jesus as the author of your salvation. Thank you for listening. Next episode, we'll jump into chapter 15. If you're not already doing so, please follow us on the From Heaven to Eternity Facebook group to keep up to date on all my latest podcast videos and blog posts. Unless otherwise noted, all Bible verses were from the World English Bible Translation, which is public domain. Until next time, I love y'all.